Welcome to a special interview edition of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. Before we get into our discussion today, I did want to do a little bit of housekeeping here, and I wanted to let you all know that we are going to slightly be breaking our tradition this year because the Tony nominations are happening at noon New York time today instead of the traditional 8.30 a.m. Therefore, we will not be doing an emergency recording immediately afterwards, and instead, we will be discussing the nominations on Friday's regular episode of Today on Broadway. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you will know that one of my favorite things to do is to talk to people far more intelligent and learned than I am, especially when it's authors and editors of books about the theater. Today is one of those opportunities as I had the distinct pleasure to talk to both Paul Edmondson, the head of research and knowledge and director of the Stratford-upon-Avon Poetry Festival, both for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, as well as Sir Stanley Wells, the honorary president at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. These two gentlemen have done meticulous work in editing the new book, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare. This beautifully printed edition from the Cambridge University Press not only collects all of Shakespeare's sonnets found in the original 1609 collection, but others found in his plays as well, and provides amazing insight and context that dispels many of the myths of Shakespeare's sonnets that I had honestly grown up believing to be true. They also provide modern English paraphrases for each and every poem, and they opened the book with a fascinating introduction that was honestly a thrilling read. Of course, I will have a link to purchase the book in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you add this to your personal library. Before we get into the interview, though, you will hear first Sir Stanley Wells's voice answering my opening question, and then you will hear Paul Edmondson's voice next. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Sir Stanley Wells and Paul Edmondson. Well, first off, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I uh, received the the book, and it's an absolutely lovely and beautiful edition. Um, so, congratulations uh, on that. There's so much that's fascinating about this, and I will, in in an effort of full disclosure, I was the kid. It, you know, when I was young, I would sign like letters and cards with a bit from Sonnet Thirty. So, uh, this is a personal thing for me, and I love the fact that there's this really insightful and and revealing collection uh, of these sonnets, and I was fascinated to read through this. And I kind of want to go through the different parts of the book, because not only do you have, as the title says, all the sonnets of Shakespeare, there's also this really insightful and knowledgeable introduction that had so much information that I just didn't know uh, about the sonnets. I kind of knew them and understood some of the basics, you know, the myths that went along with them, but there's so many details about the order and why Shakespeare wrote them and maybe why he didn't. So I wondered why you thought that was especially important to include at the beginning to give readers the opportunity to really understand the context that the sonnets were written in and where they appeared, not only as sonnets, but also in plays themselves. Well, I think it's necessary to understand the background, uh, both in relation to literary history also to dramatic history, because Shakespeare's writing, as we say, these sonnets for for the theatre, some of them, as well as for uh, as well as for himself. Uh, so I think it's helpful to people to to understand the the historical background. You, you spotted in the introduction, Matt, that lovely moment we refer to from the Merry Wives of Windsor, when the hapless Abraham Slender, the suitor of mm-hmm. Anne Page brings on a copy he's he he talks about i'd rather than 40 shillings i had my book of songs and sonnets here 
and 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 very specifically, we 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 refer to that as an early uh, edition of sonnets and of other poems, which Shakespeare would have known because it was extremely popular, and his audience would have known it, known as Tottle's Miscellany. But so when in, it, in fifteen sixty, it went through. I think it was nine editions. Uh, in the 16th century, and Shakespeare probably learnt about how to write sonnets from that. And of course, he himself does write a wooing sonnet, uh, the one addressed, uh, as, as was recognised as recently as 1971, the one that puns on the name of Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. So, so, so there's a there's a there's a, a, a knowing affection in that theatrical moment when Abraham Slender refers to that book, and as as, as we say in the introduction, it's, an, it's one of only not very many books that Shakespeare actually mentions in the plays themselves. Yeah, we, we only couldn't find two, couldn't we? Um, so, so we were keen to give some of that background, and and I think you know, um, the minute you start to admit that these poems were written over a much longer time period than has previously been properly acknowledged, then that really does change the way we must approach them, we must think about them. Well, and you mentioned the the sonnet that contains a pun on Anne Hathaway's name, and you said kind of because of the different structure of that specific one, you kind of reordered the chronology and put that as one of the earlier ones. Like you said, they were you believe they were written over a much longer period of time. Can you kind of explain how that uh, investigation and reordering went from your perspective? Yes, well, the, 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 uh, our main source for information about the dating of the of the main body of the collection is work done by an, uh, uh, an antipodean scholar called Macdonald P. Jackson. He's based at the University of Auckland. In New Zealand. And uh, over the last 30 or more years, he's been working on, on, on Shakespeare's style and in relation particularly to the sonnets. And his work is subsumed in the New Oxford Shakespeare. That's what, what we use as our primary source for all this. And his his work depends pr- primarily on parallels, uses of words and, and phrases in in the, in the in the plays as well as the sonnets as a method of dating them. So that's our our prime source for arranging them for the, the chronological order that we've adopted. But we have made one or two changes, most conspicuously in the two that are printed last in the 1609 collection, numbers 153 and 154, which it's recognised are translations of a Latin epigram. And we follow the, the quite recent idea that Shakespeare may have written those even possibly at school. Uh, hmm. Why would Shakespeare be translating poems from Latin when he was a practicing dramatist. Well, sure, the most likely point oh, at yeah. which he was doing that is when he was at school. And I, I envisage him translating one of them, 154, and then being told by his schoolmaster it wasn't quite good enough, revise it, perhaps with the <laughs> schoolmaster's help, as, as 153. So that's why we put those two first in the volume. So admitting 153, 154 and 145, let's call that one the Anne Hathaway sonnet, admitting that those those are early poems. You know, we, this gives us pause when we realise they're very late, very late on in the collection in 1609. And as Matt Jackson, Mac Jackson's um, chronology demonstrates, definitely, 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 the order in which they were printed in 1609 is not the order in which Shakespeare wrote them. And in fact, the earliest written 
are the ones which are later printed in the collection. So our book, as you, as you know, puts the last two first in the chronology, followed by 145, which is Andy Gurr, Andrew Gurr demonstrated in 1971, it could be Shakespeare's, one of Shakespeare's earliest poems, or he called it the earliest one, but we think the translations come yeah, before yeah, it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, when he was 18. In around about 1582, when he, yeah. when he marries Anne. And that's very that's extremely plausible. And, and so already in those three sonnets, you've got different reasons for producing them. You've got two translations on your hands and a biographical one, haven't you? Yeah. And you've got Shakespeare playing with the form using this uh, already established form deriving from Italian literature, uh, even perhaps before he, even before he starts writing plays. But of course, as we are very keen to show, he uses it in his plays uh, quite often. And this is this is the other primarily original feature of our book is interweaving the sonnets that we we arrange in what we believe to be their chronological order of composition, interweaving those interweaving those with passages in sonnet form from Shakespeare's plays. And what you mentioned the introduction, one of the things we do in the introduction is to show Shakespeare very early in his career in the play Edward III, which has only recently been accepted as being partly by Shakespeare. He shows the king at the, actually trying to write a sonnet and getting his servant to help him to write a sonnet. So that very much reflects Shakespeare's interest in the composition of the form and in the technique of composing sonnets. And therefore it's a form that he used and kept going back to all his life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and what's so interesting about the inclusion of sonnets in the plays themselves is, I think, for just the person who reads Shakespeare in school or even a theater lover who just has a passing knowledge of Shakespeare, you are always taught that one of Shakespeare's great skills is varying the language based off of the character that is speaking. And of course, everybody knows the iambic pentameter and the rhymed couplets, but was there a specific purpose for which Shakespeare used sonnets? I know you talk about different, you know, introductions and he used them as prologues and things like that, but actually in the dramatic literature for characters, was there a specific reason that he used them more often than not? It's difficult to generalize, Matt, but we, I would wish to say something along the lines of every time he uses a sonnet in the plays, it's at a very personally revealing moment yeah. for that character, for the narrative, for the mm. crisis. So I think of, for example, what the first one we give as an example from the plays is, is the letter that Valentine writes to Sylvia in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And it's a letter that's hidden about his person and the Duke discovers it and is incensed and eventually banishes Valentine for having written such a letter for trying to woo his daughter, for trying to elope with his daughter. Um, and we hear the sonnet being read, and it's a sonnet, a foreshortened sonnet letter. Another similar moment is when Helen, who is uh, dressed as a pilgrim going to Santiago de Compostela in All's Well That Ends Well, writes to the Countess and asks how Bertram is doing and that she's supposing that he supposes her dead. Uh, and, and then there are two, as it were, um, uh, theophanies, aren't there, Stanley? Di Diana in yes, Pericles yeah. and Jupiter in Cymbeline, um, use a sonnet form, um, Beatrice. I think, 
I, I think Shakespeare uses it in the play quite often. He uses it for a variety of purposes, but quite often as a sort of moment of interiority when the action stops mm. and you get uh, that you, sh- you show it inside the character, mm. rather like he does with soliloquies. But this is true, particularly, for example, in the, the great w- w- case in Romeo and Juliet, when Romeo and Juliet first declare their love for one another. When uh, the, 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 I've seen this done on stage with a spotlight on the lovers uh, and, and dimming of the lights on the dancers in the ball which is going on around them so you realize this is not them speaking to the audience it's them revealing their innermost thoughts to one another and the sonnet form the, the closure of the sonnet form the fact that it's in a, that it has its own identity as a form helps to helps to to emphasize that for the audience i think because they, they can hear it they'll have heard it as a sonnet as it was unfolding oh a b a b c d c d <laughs> e f e f g g um and often of course in the plays there are only 10 line sonnets um which is you know is fine it suggests that there was only so much the audience could stand to hear. Maybe I don't know. Um, but you know, Stanley said it's a, it's a, it's like an interior form. I, lo- I yeah. love, I love that idea. I'm, I'm smiling to myself because um, remember the moment in Henry the Fourth Part Two when Mistress quickly says to Doltaire Sheet, "Canaries, it's a marvelous searching wine. It's like the, the sonnet is a marvelous searching poetic form." <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wonder from a dramatic standpoint. It, do the sonnets reveal anything about Shakespeare as a writer um, that perhaps the plays themselves don't? Is there any type of, whether that's skill or specific insight that they provide an audience that maybe isn't evident from the other beautiful language that he writes dramatically? Do you mean in the plays? The yeah, it, in the- yeah. Yeah. In the plays specifically. Well, I think we have to we, we have to keep mining what we've just said then, and 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 sort of emphasise their intensity, these moments, and how they are about revelations, about uh, interior in, interiority. Yeah, um, and I think you know that what one as it were to kind of contrast that is the sonnet which ends, or and and indeed the sonnets which begin the sonnet which begins. So there's a sonnet which begins Romeo and Juliet. There's a sonnet which ends Henry V. And, and, and their function is not about the interior life, no. but it's, as it were, serving up a it's, compression it's of re- narrative. It's rhetorical, isn't it? it and it's like, hmm. it's like you know, look at what we've compressed into 14 lines. Hmm. Listen to what we've compressed. And, in that, and, and you've, so at the beginning, you're about to hear this unfold before you. So this extremely important poem at the beginning of the play, Romeo and Juliet, two households both alike in dignity. And then at the end of Henry V, it's like, this is what you've been given. And this is what you've got to look forward to, to Henry VI. Yeah. And you've already seen it because we've already done, we've already done those plays. You've seen them, you've seen them more than once. Um, so there's, there's a sort of joy in the compression of the form in those examples, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, it was quite a struggle finding the sonnets in the plays. We had to go hmm. through the plays at least complete works at least three times trying to identify sonnets because sometimes you get cl- what what are close to sonnets and indeed some of the ones that we that, that we print are not fully formed fourteen line sonnets but we felt they they bear enough relationship to the conventional sonnet form uh, to be to show the, that Shakespeare in those 
passages and those speeches in the plays was very strongly influenced by the experience that he had in writing separate sonnets, many of them, of course, we believe very strongly for himself, for his own personal soliloquies, his own in investigations of his own interior life. And some of the poems, I think, are very autobiographically interesting in that way, because they reveal Shakespeare's struggling, sometimes struggling with his demons, struggling with his conscience, struggling with his sexuality. Uh, in, and you and finding the sonnet form uh, an interesting way, uh, a valuable way of, of doing that, rather like a patient on a psychiatrist's couch. One of my favourites, favourite sonnets in the plays is Orlando in As You Like It, which is effectively him speaking a sonnet about the fact that he's writing sonnets and running through <laughs> art and carving sonnets on the trees and hanging them in the trees. And um, this is a very exciting thing because for Orlando, of course, he's only got one person to whom he's addressing his poetic endeavour, who is Rosalind. Uh, whereas for Shakespeare, uh, in the 1609 collection, he's addressing his sonnets to many different individuals and sometimes mm -hmm. um, not to an individual at all. Sometimes there are well, 25 personal meditations. Yeah. Six are addressed to abstract uh, concepts such as time, love, the muse. One of them are religious meditations. Addressed to his soul, 146. For a soul, the centre of my sinful earth. O only 121 out of 154 are addressed to people in the 1609 collection. And I think um, that's something that a lot of people who just have a cursory understanding or relationship or familiarity with the sonnets, they know that they're addressed to these different people, maybe a young man or this dark woman. And what I think is interesting about what you just said, uh, Stanley, but also is in the introduction, you say that these sonnets are almost always incredibly personal. They're not necessarily giving you direct narrative information about Shakespeare's life, but yeah. maybe they are, but it's hard to necessarily discern because while we think we know who he's writing to in a general sense, there's never any specifics. And sometimes it's hard to discern whether it's about or to a man or a woman because he changes the way he references the addressee or the person he's writing about. They're, they're very interesting and complex in the fact that while we kind of have this very basic understanding of them from a, you know, uh, you know, one short lesson in school, there's a lot more depth and nuance to who he's talking to and perhaps what he's talking about as well. There's a great deal of variety in them, yeah. too. Some of them are formal. We should, two of them are letters, for example. One of them apparently intended to accompany a gift of an almanac. Of that's, an sonnet, that's Sonnet 77. And Sonnet 26 is another, as it were, a sonnet epistle, which accompanies another piece of writing. Yeah. But going back to what you're saying about basic information, um, if that alludes to the so-called fair youth and the dark lady, mm -hmm. we'd now want to say very clearly that is wrong information. They don't exist. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was always overly simplistic. Yeah. And in fact, it's wrong. Um, because why? Because they never exist. They don't exist. Um, yeah. And the minute you admit plurality, the minute you admit that this collection is written over 30 years, well, he's not, this isn't someone setting out to write a story. Uh, to two in, about two individuals over all that time, it just doesn't wash. No, but it, it's been prop. It's been. Uh... It's been made apparently plausible by the fact that the first 17 printed of the Sonnet 169 are addressed to a, a, a male person, a younger male person, urging him to marry. And people have, got, have, have assumed almost from that that all the rest of the first 126 are, are similarly addressed to a man. To a man. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that some are addressed 
well, we've, yeah. we've said it already. This, I mean, it's, all, it's all set out in the book, but you know, those one, two, one that are, that are addressed to people, 84 of them could be to either a male or a female. This much is true. If you look closely as we have done at pronouns and you know whether anything's revealing about the sex of the addressee. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to move on to something else in the book. I, I could probably talk to you for much longer about the introduction itself because there was so much fascinating information in there. But I want to talk about the way that you lay out the sonnets themselves uh, in the book. Not only do you do an incredible job of providing um, context in terms of, you know, words or usages that might have fallen out of our, you know, modern vernacular, but you also do a great job of explaining them in more modern English paraphrases. What was the process like of trying to decide how we contextualize, how we provide um, some sort of modern paraphrase? What was the process like of trying to figure out what needed to be put into a more modern perspective and what perhaps didn't? Well, there were two, two, two factors behind this, and then we can talk maybe a little about how we did it. But uh, one factor was a conversation I had with uh, Devon Glover, who's based in Manhattan. Um, he's known as the Sonnet Man, and he raps Shakespeare's sonnets. Oh, wow. And he, he goes into schools, and he, he, he's passionate about Shakespeare's sonnets, and he turns them into song. And he did a placement with us at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust uh, as a creative writer. Um, and uh, I chatted to him at length about Shakespeare's sonnets. And he happened to say one day that um, when he was at school, he remembers the copy he was using, having just at the foot of the page, two or three words, just saying this is an angry poem or uh, a falling out with a lover, oh, wow. whatever it might be. And he said it was really helpful just to give you the tone of the poem set above it. So that got us thinking. And that's from that came the idea that we would have short, what we call thumbnail summaries at the foot of each page for each sonnet, just to allow the reader in enough so that um, you can see basically the direction that the poem is going in before you read it. And then the second factor was when, you know, Stanley and I were talking a lot about the project and meeting up regularly about it. And Stanley, one day you said to me, these are such difficult poems. And I said, Stanley, if you and I think that, what are our readers going to think? <laughs> and, and in every edition we looked in, you know, because you, uh, producing an edition of Shakespeare, you look in previous editions, you know, you're climbing on the shoulders of giants to some, to some extent. Sure. None, of them, none of them told you what, they, what these poems actually mean. They'd gloss and they'd compare, compare uses of words across the plays, but they wouldn't say this line means, especially when it was a really difficult line and, and basically one was stuck. So that's where we thought we would do prose paraphrases. Um, and they were they took some doing, didn't they? Yeah, we printed the back of the book, a full, complete paraphrase of every sonnet and every extract from the play. We did those, uh, we worked on together. Uh, I would, for example, write one and then I'd show it to Paul and he would, he would improve it, correct it perhaps, and hand it back to me. And I would say, no, you're wrong, or whatever. And, <laughs> and vice versa. And vice versa. <laughs> so it was a genuinely, the whole book, of course, is obviously a very genuinely collaborative process. But we have been very much concerned to, to be as helpful as possible to the reader. And this mm, is shown also true. in the tables that we give in yeah. the book about whom they're addressed mm. to, about how many are addressed to uh, male, female, and that sort of and, and then also the ones that break up into mini sequences within the collection and, yeah. and 19 pairs. So you know, on 19 occasions, Shakespeare, it seems, was writing a sonnet, then writing a sequel to it, which is really exciting. Yeah. 
And there are two. There are the two, for example, which he's writing, as it were, on horseback, uh, he, uh, he, he, and probably thinking them through as he rides on his long journeys, two or three day journeys between London and Stratford. And he refers to his horse and to him spurring his poor horse on the way. Those are sonnets fifty and fifty one. But going back to what you said about um, Shakespeare's uh, personality, Shakespeare's biography in these poems, and what Stanley was saying as well. I mean. What, what we honestly believe we've got on our hands here and, it, and that our approach has shown even more so than was previously thought is that these are these many of these, not all of them, but many of them are really personal poems. And when I say that, and you use the word nuance, which is vital when discussing these poems to have in one's mind. I mean, handling Shakespeare's sonnets, honestly, it's like handling nitroglycerine. You've got to be so careful what you say about them because you can't generalise and you've got to phrase everything really carefully so that you don't um, blunt the edges of the 1609 collection, which has been happening for centuries. So um, we would, I would say that these are, these are the poems of Shakespeare, so many of them, Shakespeare's inner life. They're, in, yeah, yeah, they're, sure, a, they're a, an interior autobiography. Now, this isn't original. William Wordsworth said with this key, Shakespeare unlocked his heart. But when Shakespeare was, when Wordsworth was writing that, he was thinking about fair youth and dark lady. And, and now we mean that differently because they vanished because they never existed in the first place. So that's why we're <laughs> really excited when we can use a phrase like these poems have Shakespeare's DNA in them because, you know, poets write the truth. Poets want to write what means something to them well certainly every poet i know does um and and you can really feel that can't you stand here deeply deeply time and again you can anguished in a way, and not public poems. So, some, of course, we have to stress the variety of yeah, these poems. Some of them are very formal, some of them are lyric poems, like, you know, well-known ones, like, shall I compare thee to a summer's day and so on. But some of the anguished, tortured self-examination. So they're among the less popular, the less known of them, partly because, as Paul has just said, they are, they are often very difficult in expression. I mean, have, they, yeah, have a look at, I mean, for example, 136 which ends with, my name is Will. Yeah. And that's one of the most difficult poems to understand. Yeah, it is. They're, they're as difficult as, as, the, more, uh, as the poems of, of John Donne, who also wrote some very great sonnets. They are that, in my mind, the, the greatest other sonneteer of the period, uh, whose poems were not published until after he died. And I suspect that Shakespeare didn't want his poems to be published either uh, until after he died, because this volume uh, is not published as a personal volume. The title page says Shakespeare's sonnets, never before imprinted, mm. rather implying that somehow uh, the publisher has managed to get hold of something uh, which is perhaps uh, Shakespeare wanted to keep to himself. And that, that I believe, is what happened. So, the minute, and, and that's, what, that, that's what we've come to think, isn't it, yes, very much, it that he didn't want these poems published, he wanted to keep them a secret, they were too personal for him. Yeah. One of the great things that you talk about is making these poems a little bit more accessible with your thumbnail um, par paraphrases and then the, the longer ones in the back. And this is taking a little bit of a left turn but throughout this pandemic and quarantine um one of at least the most well-known uh shakespearean interpreters of our time patrick stewart has been doing a series of reading these sonnets yes we yeah is that do you think that there's a way whether it's through a more academic approach like you did or what uh patrick stewart is doing with his readings of them are you think do you think that there's a 
there's something in the sonnet specifically that can be taken away for a modern audience, not just in this is, you know, part of the Shakespearean canon, but something a little bit more um, specific about the time we are living in now. It's something that they can take away as a kernel of truth or knowledge or insight that can help readers uh, in this very crazy modern world that we're living in now? Matt, because I believe in the power of poetry to instill fortitude in the reader and interpreter of it, then I think what we're seeing supremely exemplified through the use of Shakespeare's sonnets during lockdown is these are poems which will give you fortitude but a lot of poetry can do this. It doesn't have to be by Shakespeare. But I think we do turn to Shakespeare at times of crises, especially, and at times of intense social, political, and cultural pressure. And that's why Shakespeare's sonnets have been bubbling to the top. So there's the effect of the poem and how it can help us during lockdown. And the second thing I'd say is the content of the poems, because a lot of these poems are not pretty, they're not mm. beautiful, they're beautiful in their expression mm. and often they're very lyrical, but they're not about nice feelings, really. Even, even the ones that we can think of, like your Sonnet 30 when you were writing at the bottom of letters, mm-hmm. that's about grief and about loss mm-hmm. and about all the people you're never going to see again. And, um, you know, and a lot of them take us into some really dark places. So I would say that because the sonnet is a short form, you can feel that you've encompassed the poem that's been given to you. This is part of why it gives such fortitude. You feel that you've heard it in a minute. You've somehow taken possession of it straight away. It might, it will last on you. You want to go back and reread it and it's only going to take you a minute or you might spend an hour looking at it and find word connections and sounds that you like and thoughts that you hadn't spotted the first time round and images appear in your head. And I think the fact that Shakespeare is able to articulate such difficult feelings, feelings that we don't talk about generally in our day-to-day lives, about the complexity of feeling, for example, jealous or afraid or not being able to sleep. These are the sorts of places he takes them to. And I, and I bet you the more people read Shakespeare's sonnets and actually understand them, they'll realise actually, although we think about them reputationally as romantic poems, only some of them are. Most of them are from a person who is bruised, who um, knows the pain of love. Sometimes guilty. Often guilty, self-loathing. And you, know, you can read a Shakespeare's sonnet and you can think, oh, is it really about that? And it is. And that's what he's articulated. Yeah. Well, I think there's something, maybe it's the form or maybe the fact that he's writing these and sending them to people, but there's something that feels especially isolated about them, yeah. um, you know, as opposed to maybe the ones that are used in the the plays themselves, perhaps. But there's just something about somebody who is getting all of their emotions down on paper because they have no other outlet. And I think that that probably has a strong connection to a lot of people who might be stuck at home without seeing the people that they love for long periods of time. So I, I I definitely thought as I was reading through some of these that like, while the words might be different than what we are saying today, the emotions that are being conveyed definitely feel modern and contemporary. I, I love that image you've used. And it, 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 you mentioned John Donne a moment ago. It's like no man is an island entire of itself. And, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets are like little islands. And yet they're you know, all, you know, we can see connections between them as well. Yeah. As well as locked down and isolated. 
Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for not only talking to me about this, but for the book itself. It's uh, a tremendous read uh, and, a, and, a, and an inspection of these works. And I feel very confident in thinking that it is something that is going to be incredibly well received, not only from you know Shakespeare aficionados, but from teachers and scholars and lovers of language uh, of all kinds, because it's, it's a remarkable work. And I uh, so marveled at the care that you both put into it. So I appreciate the work that you did. I appreciate you talking talking to me about it. I thoroughly enjoyed both the conversation and the book, and I, I think that anybody who picks up a copy will as well. Thank That's great. Much. Thank you. We'd also like to say how pleased we were with the work that Cambridge University Press did on the book yes. to make it a very beautiful object in itself, down to the lilac end papers and the gold ribbon that you get along with it, which is beautifully produced. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a, it'll be a great addition to anyone's collection and uh, something that I think that you'll be pulling on and off the shelf uh, regularly for years. Thank you, Matt. Nice to talk to you. You too. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.